So we've, we've been taking this walk through essentially all the accounts of the Lord's Supper. And so the first time we did this together, it was really just nothing more than a survey. We saw all the ways that, that God has been at work orchestrating these things and, and showing people this great revelation of himself. We spent some time in 1 Corinthians and we saw what he had to say there. We saw what Jesus was calling us to in the book of John, where he's on one side of the lake and he has this tremendous following. I mean, he's got droves, thousands of people that want to follow him. He crosses the lake and he gets to the other side. He says, essentially, you followed me because you ate and you had your fill. You followed me because you saw me do tremendous wonders. But I'm telling you, if you want to be a follower of me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they heard that teaching and said, look, we can't do that. They heard the, the, the deep fellowship that Jesus was calling them into, a life of sacrifice, a life of self-denial, a life of bowing everything before him. And they said, look, we can't do that. And the thousands that he'd gathered walked away, and he was left with the remaining 12. Today we're going to come at it from the beginning. We're going to come at it from the exodus. And we're going to take some time this morning to walk through and see as God is, is, is working already in the exodus. Now you'll remember if you've, if you've read your Bible very much that, that Genesis ends and who dies? No, Moses doesn't die. It's, it's Joseph dies. Joseph dies and, and Joseph is living in the land. You remember he had these brothers that didn't really care much for him or his fancy garb and so they sell him into slavery. He ends up living in the house of, 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 of an Egyptian official and he lives there and, and we find that since the time that Joseph died, Israelites are being fruitful in the land. I mean they look, if, if, if you remember back to when we did a baby dedication here and we had 12 you know, children across the front or 12 couples or whatever it was, I mean, they would look at that and be like, it must have been an off year. It must have been an off year. They were being so fruitful in the land that, that when we open this up, the text tells us that the king who had known Joseph died. And there was now a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's verse 8 of chapter 1. And he looks around, and he begins to survey the Israelites. It's not making him feel all that good. It's not making him feel all that good because he looks around and he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies. So this new king surveils the landscape and he says, These people, I mean, they, number one, they outnumber us. Number two, they're strong, they're healthy people. Number three, if war breaks out, what if they take the side of those encroaching on our land? He comes up with this great idea, and he enslaves the Israelites. He enslaves the Israelites. He comes up with another idea. He says, hey, look, I know what we can do to control this population. We're going to kill all the male children. We're going to kill the male children. So he tells the midwives, he says, if, if, if you see a son come out and he's, he's a male, you need to kill him. Well, these Hebrew midwives, they hear that, man, they are, they're not about to follow through on that. And so they go back to Pharaoh, and they're like, Pharaoh, you're never going to believe this. These women are so quick at delivering that by the time we hear about it and get there, the baby's out. And we're like, I don't know. I mean, they're just super fast. There's no epidural. There's no Pitocin drip. There's none of these things, but they're very, very quick at having children. Pharaoh says, okay, 
check that. So he sends the Egyptians out, and he says, okay, these women aren't going to do it, but, but if you see a male Israelite child, a Hebrew child, kill it. But then we see God moving in the process, moving very much against Pharaoh. God has another male child born. And, and, and this male child is is incredibly famous and well-known for us today thanks to Charlton Heston standing on the mountains and yelling with two ta- stone tablets. And then for children as they watch the prince of Egypt, this male child is none other than Moses. And Moses' mother gives birth to him and she conceals him for three months. For three months when he cries in the night, they're quieting it for three months. They're concealing the fact that that she was a little hefty, and now she's not as hefty anymore. For three months, they're working to show, to try and conceal the fact that that they have this child there. But you'll remember the often told story about how she takes the child, and she puts him in this makeshift raft, and she sends it down the Nile. Moses' sister's walking along, trying to see what happens. And lo and behold, who uncovers the raft? Princess of Egypt. One of Pharaoh's daughters. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's laughable to think that this is where God sends the man who will work for the deliverance of this people. He will send this child who will bring about the deliverance of the Israelites into the house of his own oppressors. I mean, is it not amazing that God's provision even extends to the child Moses as he spends 40 years being raised in the house of Pharaoh. Forty years he spends living in the house of Egypt. Now, Moses, about the time he hits 40, and you can flip over to Acts 7 if you want to get some more background on this, when Stephen is giving his speech. So Moses, around about Exodus, 11, Exodus 1.11, he goes out and it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out of his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses comes up, and he sees this guy roughing up a Hebrew, and what does he do? He, he, he strikes him. He kills him. He looks this way and that. He surveils. He makes sure, no, makes sure that nobody is, is spying on him. There's nobody to report what he's doing. He kills this guy. He knows it's wrong, and so he buries him. Stephen, in this speech in Acts 7, tells us that Moses saw himself as bringing the salvation of God to his hand. That's what Moses thought he was doing. He thought that he was bringing about God's salvation to the Israelites, and he thought he was going to usher that in. But look at the response Moses gets. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard about it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled, and Pharaoh stayed in the land of, I'm sorry, uh, Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so Moses discovers that, that surely somebody had seen him. And word had traveled around, and this rebellion, this salvation that he sought to bring when he entered into two of the people that he was born into this race, and he entered in to break up this disagreement and this argument, the word they tell him is, 
are you going to kill the one of us that's in the wrong? They see Moses not as this great bringer of salvation, but they see Moses as one who, when he gets angry or he gets motivated, pushes to the point where he murders an Egyptian. And so Moses li- lives in Midian. And while he's there, he, he takes a wife. He's got this great father-in-law, and he has two sons. And again, we read in Acts that Moses is there for 40 years. And the lo and behold, Moses is out, and he's doing the thing that, that, that ranchers do, and he's, he's out with the sheep, and he's tracking down, and he sees this bush, and this bush is burning brightly. And this is probably a common thing and when they're out, and they see bushes burning brightly, but, but he's not smelling anything burning from it. He doesn't see the bush breaking down. He doesn't see it falling apart. What he sees is this flame burning, but the bush is remaining fine. And so he walks over. He walks over, and he begins to inquire of of what's going on there. And lo and behold, God is speaking to him in the midst of this situation. God, the God who who led Moses' mother to put him in a raft and to send him straight into the heart and to be raised in the household of the oppressors, that same God is now speaking to Moses in the land of Midian under the guise of a bush. I mean, this is... This is remarkable stuff. And so God begins to spin this story. So he tells Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to know I've heard the outcry of the people. I've heard their outcry. I hear their, their, their anguish. I hear their fear. I hear their suffering. And this is what I'm going to do about it. He says, Moses, you remember that you thought you could bring about salvation. And Moses, you are. But you're going to do it under my power instead of your own. So he tells Moses that he's going to send him back to work for the deliverance of the people. And what's Moses' response to this? Is he, is he up for this? Is he really excited about this? Does Moses hear that and say, oh, absolutely. I got my, my donkey packed. I just got to go by the house and grab the wife and the kids. And man, we will hottail it to Egypt. You mind if I stop by in and out of my way? Because I'm a little hungry. No, Moses hear him says, hears God say this, and he's just like, whoa, you know, God, this is a busy week. I got, you know, harvest and, you know, things, and I'm not real great talking to people. I mean, talking to, see what I'm talking about? I'm not good at talking to people. He says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. He's not going to have anything to do with me. And so God tells him. He says, Moses, I'm going to give you some powerful signs. And in chapter 4, he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is this in your hand? Moses responded. He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it by his tail, and it became a staff again in his hand. So God goes through and he gives him these amazing signs that he's going to be able to do. He's got this staff that he can throw on the ground and it turns into a snake. He's got this hand that if he puts it in his, hand, in his robe and pulls it out, his hand is covered in a leprous sores. And Moses still says, that's great, but somebody's got to be able to say these things without tripping all over their tongue. God gets a little bit angry with Moses and then he relents and he says, Moses, you know you've got a brother Aaron and he's He's good at speaking. He speaks well. And so God links Moses and Aaron to go and to deliver this message. 
And so the first place they have to go to is to all the people of Israel. So they go before the people of Israel, and they show them the signs, and they tell them that I am has sent me. And the people believe when they hear that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and he had seen their affliction and bowed their heads and worshiped. The people believe. The people are supporting Moses. The people are, are ready for deliverance. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh. He's got his first encounter with Pharaoh. So he knows his way around. So he walks in and he talks to him and he pulls out the staff and, and Pharaoh's magicians come in and they throw down their staff and then you've got snakes and snakes and Moses' snakes gobbles up their snake and he's showing this and Pharaoh is not going for it. In fact, his response is, who is this Lord that I should obey him? Who is this God that I should bow down before him? He says, you're distracting all of these people. You've taken them away from their work. You've taken them away from being productive. I tell you what, Moses, if you've got so much time on your hands, then you can gather your own straw. You see, the Israelites were making bricks. They were building. They were constructing things for the Egyptians. But the Egyptians would bring them the straw necessary for this work. And Pharaoh looks at it and says, I'll tell you what, if you've got so much time on your hands that you could do this, you can get your own straw. Your workload remains the same, but let me make it that much more difficult for you. Well, you can imagine how well this went over for Moses when the Israelites begin to hear of how the report went. Now, they were, they were into freedom. When this guy shows up and he says, look, I've talked to I am. He says he's going to deliver you. He's heard your cry. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. It's going to be okay, guys. And then Moses goes and he talks to Pharaoh and he comes back. And things get radically worse for them. Their labor's more intense. Their work's harder. Their burden is so much heavier. The deliverance of God is not working out the way that they had planned. And then we see that, that God continues to restate his deliverance. In chapter 6, he tells Moses again, he says, I will deliver these people. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But to my name, the Lord, I did not make, make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land in Canaan. He is telling them, I am going to deliver you. Moses goes back before Pharaoh, and you remember that he, he uses ten different plagues against the Egyptians, doesn't he? And the interesting thing in this, and we're not going to get into this depth today, but as he does each and every one of these plagues, he's centering in on some aspect of the system of deity, of, of the system of divine worship for the Egyptians. So every single one of these plagues is a direct assault to the Egyptians. Every single one of these plagues centers around their understanding, the Egyptians' understanding of who gods are. And Yahweh, I am, makes a mockery of their system of deity. Yahweh, I am, obliterates their understanding of their powerful gods. Just as powerful as they thought their gods were, God, I am, proves himself to be truly omnipotent and all-powerful. So Moses goes back in with Aaron, 
And God has instructed him that he is to turn the Nile to blood. In verse 20 of chapter 7, it says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood running throughout the land of Egypt. But the Egyptians, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So somehow they are able to turn some water into blood or a blood-like substance. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Now the second Second of these plagues gets a little bit more interesting. And, and the first time I read this as I was studying it this past week, I remember thinking, frogs, I never really understood that one. And so if you're preaching this over in Fort Worth and you're talking about frogs being a plague, you can talk about horn frogs, you can talk about TCU. And I think some of us would agree that they're a little bit of a plague on the Big 12. Or not. I think they are. I'm talking, I've got the microphone. And so he, he, he goes after them with a frog plague. Now this is interesting. I'm not particularly a fan of frogs. I do like their legs when they're battered and fried. But I've never really thought of them as, as plague worthy, as something that, that I would be all that afraid of. But when you remember that God is systematically going after their system of deity, and the Egyptians in that system worshipped a god with a frog head. They revered the frog. Now, this isn't in the text. This is from Extra Biblical, but, but they revered the frog. So you have to imagine when the frog's first coming out, they're like, God is here. You know, ribbit, hello. And so they're excited about this, but now frogs are everywhere. Frogs are in everything. They go to drink water, and they're like, oh, Lord. Man, I wanted that water. They go to... Go to lay down in their bed, and they're like, oh, you're there. It's okay, I'll, 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 I'll lay somewhere else, non-frog infested. And so the frogs are everywhere, and they can't do anything about it. They can't do anything about it. And then Pharaoh calls Moses in verse 8, and he said, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs away from my people, and I will let them go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses goes and he entreats God and he says, God, would you stop this plague of frogs? And so some of the frogs go back into the Nile, but the rest die. Verse 13 says, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh's promise to allow the Israelites to go and to worship God, it was nothing more than, than a desire to see these things come to an end. So Moses, is, Moses stretches, out, stretches out his staff again, and he strikes the dust of the earth in verse 16, so that all the dust became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not do it. So there were gnats on man and beast, 
Then the magician said to Pharaoh, and check it out, these guys are beginning to realize that Moses isn't some conjurer, but that he is an agent of Almighty. Verse 19, he says, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So imagine gnats are covering everything. All the water's been turned to blood, and they've had frogs everywhere under every step. And then we see the fourth plague. The Lord said to Moses in verse 20, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes into the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarm of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. But listen to this. Verse 22. He said, but on that day I will separate the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Therefore, I will put a division between my people and your people. Pharaoh doesn't go for it. Pharaoh doesn't go for it, and so the flies descend upon all the people of Israel, and there is a curtain where the flies do not cross over. They do not cross over to damage the Israelites. Now, these aren't house flies. I had two house flies in my house yesterday, and they aggravated me to death, and they're very fast, and they evaded my fly swatter for at least two or three hours. These aren't house flies. Have you guys ever seen the world's largest Louisiana-bred horsefly? I mean, this thing could take half of your blood in about five minutes when it lands on you, and it, 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 it sucks onto your neck, and the next thing you know, you're, you're crawling around, and you need a transfusion. I mean, because this thing is bred in the deepest, darkest swamps of Louisiana. No, they're everywhere. This swarm of flies, it's everywhere on everyone in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh cries out in verse 25 of chapter 8, and he says, he says, go sacrifice your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we will sacrifice to our God are abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice abominable things, <coughs> things that are abominable to the Egyptians, before their eyes, will they not stone us? So Pharaoh goes on and he says, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from, from Pharaoh from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses goes out, and he does exactly what he says he's going to do. He entreats God the very next day, and he says, God, I pray that you would cause this plague of flies to come to an end, and he does. But in verse 32, we see that Pharaoh had hardened his heart again, and he did not let the people go. We come to the fifth plague. Moses goes in, and he tells Pharaoh, he says, look, if you don't let the people go, all of your livestock is going to die. He says, your livestock is going to die. The livestock of the Egyptians is going to die. God's going to make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. But they're going to die. Pharaoh hardened his heart again. 
God sends the plague and the livestock dies. Moses goes in again and he says, I tell you what, let us go or God is going to send a plague of boils. You're going to have massive festering sores all over your body. How does Pharaoh respond? He doesn't. In fact, in verse 11, we see the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. And the boils came upon the magicians, upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Moses comes to him once more in the seventh plague. And he says, every animal that is in the field will be put to death, and every man will be put to death by hail. And so he says this in front of everybody so everyone can hear it. And then the hail comes. Massive hail as they've never seen in Egypt before. And in the verse 27, we see Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Man. We're going to quickly find that it's nothing more than than just words, but Pharaoh is on to it, is he not? If the verbalization of his mouth had been the cry of his heart, real change could have happened. And so he asked Moses again, he says, Plead with the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Well, we read again that he doesn't do it. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So that the heart of Pharaoh is hardened. We see in the eighth plague that Moses goes in and he talks to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, I'm going to have God send a plague of locusts like none before and he's going to destroy absolutely every piece of vegetation in the land if you don't let us go. Pharaoh being a slow learner doesn't abide by this. He doesn't think that God's going to do it, and Moses stretches out his staff, and the locusts come. And the locusts devour everything. They devour absolutely everything. And so Moses goes in, and he talks to him again. Verse 16 of chapter 10, it says, Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin, and only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. So God removes all of the locusts, but he still won't let the people go. So then the ninth plague comes in. Moses stretches out his hand toward heaven. There may, there may be darkness in the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. In three days it remained, and no one could see one another. Now imagine that these are still distinct. We have the place where all the Israelites live, and we have the place where the Egyptians live. There is a division drawn between God's influence in this plague. Verse 24, so Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve your Lord with the little ones. Also may all go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Pharaoh is trying to negotiate a compromise with God. He's trying to negotiate a compromise with God. And then these are the words that Pharaoh utters in verse 28. 
He says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. You see, as we begin to reflect upon these first nine plagues, we notice that, that God is causing an affront to every system, every God within the, the system of deity for the Egyptians. Man, he's going after the Nile, the source of life. He's going after their, their frog god. He's, he's devastating their, their livestock. He's devastating their crops. He's devastating their own bodies, causing boils to appear on them. He's killing some by hail. God is systematically just deconstructing their entire system of worship. And then he causes darkness to fall on the land. You see, God, when we encounter him, does something so very similar. That he comes to each of us, and what we have done in our lostness, what we have done in our own darkness, is that we have created our own systems of worship. So we have those things in our life that we say, man, this is, this is my livelihood. God, you can have everything except my livelihood. And we place that higher than God, and we worship that. And we say, God, you can have, you can have absolutely everything except my family, except my health. We place a hedge around that. We seal it off from him and we worship it. We make a God out of it. You see, God is systematically moving through the things in our lives that we try and keep blocked off from him. The things in our lives that we say, God, keep your hands off of this. And he is devastating our false system of worship. And then there's the darkness. You see, before we come to faith in Christ, we are wandering in darkness. And we're so lost and so depraved, and we don't even know it yet. Can't see our hand in front of our face. We don't know which way is up and which way is down. We are just lost. And there is great news. Read in John chapter 1 and verse 9 that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. See, the great news of all this is that Jesus, the light of true light, comes into the world and he devastates the darkness, he obliterates the lostness, and he extends to us light and darkness. He extends to us forgiveness of sin. That's what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper is the fact that, that God sent His Son to live a perfect and sinless life to allow His body to be broken, His blood to be shed. As we enter into these next few moments when we begin to take the first of the two elements together, contemplate on what areas of your life that you are keeping segregated off, walled off, and what safeguards have you placed in your life to say, God, you can have everything but not this? And recognize that God entered into the darkness of your life in the person of Christ and rescued you from a place that you could never get yourself out of. 
that God entered into the darkness and the sin of your own life and pulled you from a place that you could never get out of on your own. God threatens with one more plague. He's gone through and he systematically assaulted their entire way of life, and then he finally comes to the height of the Egyptian system of worship, Pharaoh himself. The the royal bloodline that would extend from him, he goes after their very way of understanding the deity that extends from Pharaoh as a steward over all the other deities. And so God tells Moses, he says that I am going to kill every first born. He says in verse 4 of chapter 11, he says, about midnight I'll go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. The firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there should be a great outcry in the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So Moses hears this and And God gives him instruction to care for the provision of those that don't want to fall under the wrath of God. So Moses tells me, he says, this is what you're going to do. I want you to tell this to everybody. That if they will take the blood of a lamb, a lamb without blemish, and will take that blood and will put it around their doorpost and across the top of the door. That when the angel of the Lord passes over them, to bring about death, then their lives will be spared. Verse 5, it said, Your lamb should be a blemish, a male, a year old. You'll take it from the sheep or the goats. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So God is giving them instruction for how to keep themselves set apart. And then we read in verse 29 of chapter 12, that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the middle of the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out. From among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. See, God was was moving in. This is what God had told Moses when he was still in the land, still in Midian. He said he was going to move against the firstborn of Israel, or firstborn of Egypt, that God was going to deliver his people, and that Pharaoh's heart would continually be hardened as a result of these plagues. That Pharaoh's position would be one of intransigence, that Pharaoh's position would be one of, of, of not being inclined to agree with where God was calling him. That Pharaoh would not relent. But God provided for his people through the blood of this lamb. And what purpose was God trying to work out for them? What purpose was he doing these things? Was he doing it to show punishment on the Egyptians? Was he doing it solely so the Egyptians would see this and feel this entire sense of punishment and how life is so unfair against them? See, if you read in chapter 10 and verse 2, we see why God was doing this. 
He says, Moses, I'm telling you that I'm doing this, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, so that they may know that I am the Lord. See, God was setting himself completely apart from anyone's understanding of God. He was doing it for the Egyptians, yes, and showing the futile attempts that their deities could exercise against a sovereign Yahweh God. But he was also showing the Israelites that their small, fledgling concept of who God was needed to be expanded. It needed to be increased. And so he gave them provision and protection with the blood of the Lamb. But you see, just like we talked about a few minutes ago, that that God is systematically destroying the different deities, the different things in our lives that we've walled off. For most of us, when you boil it down, we don't worship our job, we just do it because we have to pay bills. We don't, we don't worship these other things in our lives, but what we do worship, what we do find ourselves giving ourselves to time and time again, bowing ourselves in humble submission to and reverencing, is ourself. You see, at the end of all this, Pharaoh was God. And I'm telling you, friends, when we don't bow ourselves 100% devoted before God, then we set ourselves up as our own gods. When we make our own wills those things that we're not willing to bow down before God, then we're saying, God, it's, it's my way and my concept of doing things over your way and your concept of doing things. We're entering into the same line of thought that Pharaoh did. You see, God's wrath is poured out on all mankind. And that wrath is poured out because of sin. That wrath is poured out because I think my way is better than God's way. But God provides a way of escape. You see, he covered the Israelites with the blood of a lamb. They were to take it and they were to cover the two sides of the doorpost, and they were to cover the lintel with that blood, and God covers us today. We read in, first, in, we read in John one twenty nine. it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this is what God did. Years before Jesus was born, God was working to restore people. God was working to bring a people out of a land, out of darkness, out of slavery. And he does that today for you and for me. And he does it through a lamb, and that lamb's name is Jesus. Jesus, is, whose blood was shed on the cross, Jesus, who took my sin and your sin and gave up life and perfection who allowed himself to be put to death at the hand of his creation extends to you forgiveness. That same Jesus extends to you the covering of his blood. And that's what we commemorate in the Lord's Supper. That even in your lostness, in your darkness, and, and wallowing around in your own sin, mired in your inability to do anything to affect that, that God intercedes, that He extends to you a hand of salvation. And that as we reach up and we take that hand, He saves us. He radically transforms us. He radically transfers us 
from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So during this time, before we take of the cup, reflect on the goodness of God. And continue to reflect upon those things you have in your life that you are still holding on to. Friends, it's God that saves you. He does it through the blood of Christ. This is not a cheap grace that we worship. This is, this is not a cheap grace that we take in. This is grace that was brought to us through the shed blood of the Savior. Let me pray for us.